You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And uh want to start this show. This is a veteran's story, and we have Pete Mecca on the line. By the way, if you didn't listen to Pete's show last week, you got to go back and listen to it. I've been pushing it and pushing it. It was one of the most entertaining shows, and I've had people call me and compliment me, and I say, no, no, it wasn't me. It was Pete Mecca, and uh, you did an outstanding job on it. Before we get started with the show, though, I want to uh, do what we've been doing for a while, and, and this is all veterans praying for veterans, and obviously anyone that's listening praying for veterans as well. And it's dedicated, if you go to my homepage, americaswebradio.com, you'll see that there's a... Uh, block up there that says J. Roy Ritchie Memorial Veterans Prayer Line. And if you know a veteran or you are a veteran and need a prayer, let other veterans. There's a bunch of us around the world and we'll, we'll be happy to post your name and pray for you and or your friend or your relative, whatever the case might be. But uh, just go to our website and fill out the form, and nothing happens. We don't sell your email. We don't anything. We just we just pray for our veterans. So with that, let's just pause for one minute and think about our veterans and their needs around the world. Amen. And now we'll go to Lieutenant Colonel Pete Mecca, retired, and uh, for another great show, a veteran story. And as I kid all the time, I've never known a veteran that can tell just one story. Have you, Pete? No, sir. But we all have a story to tell. <laughs> and uh, there, I, I would say 99 out of 100 are worth listening to every time, and even if they're repeated, they're worth listening to. Yes, and uh, So, with that being said, the show's all yours. Thank you, David. Vietnam, folks. Vietnam. Why? What were we doing there? And more importantly, who is to blame? I can answer those questions in detail, but that would take about two weeks. So, as a Vietnam veteran, I will try to give you my side of the story within this broadcast hour. My thoughts on Vietnam may not appeal to all Vietnam veterans because most non-vets fought in one certain area in one certain tactical zone. The northern part of South Vietnam was identified as I-Corps, actually one corps, 
but always pronounced I-Corps. The Central Highlands and the Middle South Vietnam was identified as II-Corps. The 10 provinces around Saigon were known as III-Corps with ZZ province, spelled D-I-E-D-I-N-G, but pronounced and sounds like Zazi around the capital of Saigon, known as the Capital Special Zone. And the marshlands of the Mekong Delta were, were identified as Fort Corps. As a member of the intelligence community, I thought that maybe I was aware of the whole picture, but maybe I wasn't. Maybe none of us were. Maybe I just saw what I wanted to see. I know the majority of Vietnam veterans are only focused on their area, area, their base or barracks or bunker, and their buddies, and how to get home in one piece. Now, however, let, let's talk a little bit about the country, Vietnam. The land now known as Vietnam is prehistoric. Human remains found in caves in northern Vietnam date back over 500,000 years. Rice cultivation didn't begin until around 1,000 B.C. But for our purposes today, we need to journey back a mere 2,000 years. Vietnam's primary enemy for at least 2,000 years was to the north, those pesky Chinese. Wars plagued the land, battles after battles, wars after wars. Death seemed like a way of life. Yet in the 1500s, people with round eyes and different skin tones began arriving by sailing vessels. First came the Portuguese. Well, the native people didn't really like them and drove them out. In the 1600s, the East India Company, owned by the British, of course, started trade in the area, as did the French. In 1664, French missionaries and Spanish Dominicans arrived to Christianize the area, known then as Chochin, China. By the mid-1800s, Vietnamese rulers and authorities felt threatened by all this Christianization of their country, and they jailed several missionaries and probably killed a few. Well, that sort of upset the French. They sent their Navy to intervene in Vietnam in 1843. After a series of military conquests by the French, with the help from the Spanish and some Tonkinese Catholics, a Western-style culture and political system took a strict yet somewhat shaky hold in what became formally known in 1887 as French Indochina. The land encompassed present-day Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Folks, that's a huge chunk of foreign land to colonize, but it's even tougher to protect. Into this land of foreign domination, a Vietnamese child was born in 1890 near Sanling, Vietnam. His name was Nguyen Sang Nguyen. During his lifetime, he would use four other birth years, 19, I'm sorry, 1891, 1892, 1893, and 1895. He was also known to have, to have used between 50 and 100 other names during his lifetime. History remembers this man as Ho Chi Minh. Now, Ho Chi Minh was a poet, writer, and journalist. He wrote several books and articles uh, and poems in French, Chinese, and Vietnamese. He was educated. He was exposed to rebellion after his father, a demoted imperial magistrate, refused to serve in the imperial, uh, the imperial bureaucracy because it meant he would be serving the French 
Now, with a French uh, fierce distaste for foreign rule, Ho Chi Minh traveled first to Saigon, Vietnam, where he found work as a kitchen helper on a French steamer. The steamer sailed for France in June of 1911 and arrived in Marseille, France on July 5th of that year. For the next 30 years, Ho Chi Minh sailed the world or traveled via road or rail to the Soviet Union, China, Britain, Brussels, uh, Berlin, Switzerland, Italy, Thailand, Hong Kong. And yep, he even came to the United States of America. In America, he lived in Harlem and in Boston. In Boston, he worked as a baker at the Parker House Hotel from 1917 to 1918. Ho also claimed that he worked uh, for a wealthy family in Brooklyn, and he was also a line manager for, wait to hear this, General Motors. Back in France from 1919 to 1923, he developed interest in the Socialist Party of France, plus joined a politically oriented organization of Vietnamese patriots, hopefully seeking civil rights for the Vietnamese people in French Indochina. And he became the founding father of the French Communist Party. He studied and gave lectures in the Soviet Union, then traveled to China to study communism, plus gave lectures on pro-communist revolution movements in Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh was said to be celibate all his life. That's not true. He married a Chinese lady, but his communist comrades objected to the marriage. They told him, too important, you don't need to be married. Ho Chi Minh told his uh, communist comrades, I will get married despite your disapproval because I need a woman to teach me the language and to clean my house. He was 36. She was 21. Seeing no other options for ridding his native country of foreign influence, Ho Chi Minh continued to embrace communism and returned to Vietnam in 1941 to lead the Viet Minh, that's the Vietnamese uh, uh, communist military wing, the Viet Minh Independence Movement. Now, after Hitler defeated France in World War II, the Japanese took over French Indochina. For Ho and the Viet Minh, this was a golden opportunity. Ho oversaw many successful military actions against the Japanese and the Vichy French, plus developed a close yet clandestine support from the OSS the United States Office of Strategic Services, later to be known as the CIA. Ho offered the OSS intelligence on the Japanese, asking only for a line of communications between his Vietnamese and the Allies. The OSS agreed and sent a team of agents to train Ho Chi Minh's men. They found a very, very sick man. Ho Chi Minh was near death from malaria and dysentery. An OSS doctor saved his life. Within World War II, French reoccupation of Vietnam brought violence and protest. During one heated standoff in late 1946, a French cruiser bombarded the port city of Haiphong, killing more than 6,000 civilians and wounding more than 14,000. The French-Indochina War was on. In February 1950, 
Ho Chi Minh met with Joseph Stalin and Communist leader from China, Mao Zedong, in Moscow. They all agreed that China would be the primary source of weapons and training for the Viet Minh. The French were eventually defeated in the epic battle at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. A ragtag peasant military, armed with modern-day weapons and materials, had defeated a major military power. It would not be the last time. It's interesting to note that during the French Indochina War, the United States was fighting a so-called limited war in Korea. It wouldn't be the last time. Ho Chi Minh requested aid and our interference on their behalf from the United States during the French Indochina War. His request was ignored. America, however, did support the French military power. During the siege of Dien Bien Phu, American President Dwight Eisenhower and congressional leaders contemplated the use of atomic bombs to save the French from defeat. Thankfully, that idea was defeated by common sense. It's also interesting to note that President Eisenhower famously stated his belief to, quote, never involve American soldiers in a ground war in Southeast Asia. Folks, it's time for our first break. I'll be right back. And we're glad to have you listen. The, to get out and vote. If you haven't voted, get out and vote as soon as possible. And uh, we've got to keep the uh, Senate in Republican hands or this country will change like like Vietnam did. Anyway, we'll be back right after this. I'm your host, Dr. Hal. Every week we come to you with the information that you need so that you will be prepared to advocate for your family and for yourselves when it comes to your health care. God forbid we get Ossoff and Warnock in the Senate and the left gets what they want, which is a majority in Congress and the White House. First of all, health care will be more expensive. There initially will be a public option. The government will run it. They will be initially very inexpensive, and it will drive commercial payers out of the health care market. Then the choices will disappear. The only insurer out there will be the federal government, and that's when we get a single payer. This is Rocky Blyer, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warrior to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who've been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio, for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you at noon on January 28th. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back uh, discussing uh, Vietnam. Uh, we just talked about 
their leader, Ho Chi Minh. Let's talk about another important communist figure in that war. His name was General Ziap. It's spelled G-I-A-P, but it's pronounced Ziap. Don't ask me why it's Vietnamese. <laughs> Only Vietnamese I ever learned was Talabandang Nan, which means I am a friend, don't shoot. Anyway, General Ziap was the military genius behind Ho's military might. Now, like Ho Chi Minh, General Ziap was well-educated and taught history for a while. His two greatest influence in his life were T.E. Lawrence, of Lawrence of Arabia fame, and good old Napoleon Bonaparte. And, like Ho Chi Minh, Ziap developed a hatred for foreign domination due to his father's influence. Ziap's father, a minor official, was a committed Vietnamese nationalist. The French arrested Zayap's father in 1919 for subversive activities, and he died in prison a few weeks later. Zayap had two sisters and one brother. One of his sisters was arrested after, after their father's death and died from the hardships of prison life shortly after her release. Drawn to the communist cause, Zayap was arrested on several occasions for taking part in protests and spent time in prisons. He was forced into exile in China in 1940. His wife was arrested after his departure and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Zayap returned to Vietnam in 1941 with about 40 men. Those men and other groups formed the basis of the communist military wing called the Viet Minh. In the summer of 1943, while working alongside Ho Chi Minh, Zayap was informed his wife had been beaten to death by prison guards and her sister had been guillotined. Zayap's daughter died in prison from unknown causes. I guess one could easily understand why Zayap had no love lost for the French. With the help of the OSS, America's CIA at that time, Zayap and his men were soon trained and ready for war, at least with hit-and-run tactics to begin with. The training served them well against the Japanese, then against the French, culminating with the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu. True, the French suffered terrible defeats on the battlefield. But one forgotten factor was French public opinion, soon be echoed by American public opinion. French public opinion was expressed along these lines in the early 50s, and you can look to the late 60s and see what Americans thought, and it's about the same thing. The French said between 1946 and 1952, too many French troops had been killed, wounded, or captured. France's economy had been devastated by World War II. The cost of the war was had, had so far been twice what they had received from the United States to rebuild their country under the Marshall Plan. The war was in its seventh year, and still no signs of a French victory. The French were beginning to believe that their country did not have any moral justification for being in Vietnam. And yes, the French political left supported the goals of the Viet Minh to form a socialist communist state in Vietnam. Now, General Zayap would lead the North Vietnamese military during America's war in Vietnam. 
using the same hit-and-run tactics known as sparrow warfare. He avoided major engagements with superior forces and increasingly wore down his enemies psychologically. However, Zayat made the mistake of agreeing to the Tet Offensive of 1968 to engage the more powerful American forces head-to-head in conventional warfare. He did not like the plan for the Tet Offensive. So much so, he even left Vietnam for medical treatment in Hungary and did not return until the offensive was in full swing. But he was right. The Viet Cong and North Vietnamese were decimated by American military power. They lost the Tet Offensive militarily, but they won the war politically. The American home front, much like the French home front, collapsed. For America, the quicksand war called Vietnam began as early as 1954, but President John F. Kennedy was the one to increase America's commitment by adding more and more military advisors to South Vietnam. Now, with good reason, President Kennedy predicted, and I quote, the war in Vietnam will be won or lost in Laos. And he was spot on. Had it not been for the paths and dirty roads through Laos, called the Ho Chi Minh Trail by the Americans, North Vietnam could not have supplied the war in the South. President Kennedy had second thoughts. He considered pulling our advisors out of Vietnam. But an assassin's bullet in Dallas put an end to any early withdrawal from Vietnam and the start of a very long war. Was the war Kennedy's fault? Nah, doubtful. But President Johnson and his Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara were certainly blameworthy for their indecisiveness and realized early on that the United States had its feet firmly entrenched in Southeast Asian quicksand. They knew the truth, but lied to the American people, plain and simple. President Nixon, of course, had his own issues. Basically, the Paris peace talks, which were conducted for political reasons, and the idea of an honorable withdrawal versus talk from strength and not weakness. By the way, folks, a lot of people don't know this. The so-called Paris Peace Agreement, it included the release of American POWs in North Vietnam. Most of us know that. But I don't think you knew that in the Paris Peace Accords, it did not address any Allied POWs in Laos, Cambodia, or South Vietnam. Did we leave boys over there? You tell me. Some of the greatest information about the shenanigans of President Johnson and Robert McNamara are in a book called Dereliction of Duty. I suggest you get that book and read it if you want to understand the politics behind the Vietnam War. It is interesting, it is informative, and it'll make you mad if it doesn't make you cry. Another book called A Bright Shining Lie tells this whole story of the long cause called Vietnam, both militarily 
and politically. Now, here's my personal thoughts on the war that I was engaged in. CBI Theater of Operations, that's China, Burma, and India, kept my father overseas for almost three years during World War II. Now, that was his war. Vietnam kept me in Southeast Asia for almost three years. That was my war. Like father, like son, I suppose. But Dad moved for what he fought. Freedom and the unconditional surrender of the enemy. His son, yours truly, only thought he grasped the logic behind the Vietnam War. My generation of baby boomers grew up on the stories of World War II. We read the books. We cheered John Wayne and his fellow Marines. They took Mount Suribachi in the movie Sands of Iwo Jima. Incidentally, in that movie Sands of Iwo Jima, uh, three of the famous flag raisers were in that movie. Within five years after World War II, America suddenly thrust into a war in a place called Korea. To our generation of baby boomers, the concept of a limited war was hard to understand, and the war had little consequence for most American families. Except for kids like Steve Burke, one of my high school buddies, his father, a pilot, was shot down and killed fighting for an eventual stalemate on a peninsula known as the Hermit Kingdom. But years later, what happened in this mysterious third world country called Vietnam. What caused half of my generation to rally around the flag while the other half burned it? In the end, a truism prevailed that even the most powerful country on the face of the earth cannot arrogantly trample across quicksand. Half-assed wars breed half-assed results. The price of such folly resulted in 58,307 names etched into a 494-foot black granite wall, a wall void of elaborate statuary and without an inscription to identify which war it represents. America lost its innocence in Vietnam, much like a virgin regretting a bad decision. The psychological effects of that decision still walks our streets today. My journey home from Vietnam came to fruition on Veterans Day weekend in 2011. I was fortunate to be on one of the four airlines, courtesy of the History Channel, transporting Vietnam veterans to our nation's capital for three days of a whirlwind activities, including a special ceremony at the walk. Joe Galloway, the celebrated war correspondent who remained on the ground during the Battle of the Idrang Valley, was our guest speaker. Joe did not pull any punches. He spoke the truth, and we embraced his veracity. After nearly 50 years of private nightmares and memories, I was finally able to approach that large chunk of black granite and caress the names of guys I knew a long time ago. I'll tell you about that experience as we come back from our second break. Stay with me, folks. 
This is Rocky Blyer, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warrior to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who've been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio, for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you at noon on January 28th. I want to remind everybody that uh, we support very much so. We support the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and it's in the Floyd Building right across the street from the Capitol. And you can go down there and see their pictures of of all the veterans that and the write-up about them and what they did and why they were brought in, inducted into the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Our close friend Rick White does an outstanding job. He's the director of the Hall of Fame. And uh, Paul Longry, a chaplain, he has a heck of a story, too. And he was the one that started it, and then uh, Rick came on as the director and has just done a marvelous job. Also want to remind you, in Johns Creek, Georgia, is uh, Pete was just talking about the granite wall in Washington, D.C. Well, in Johns Creek, Georgia, there is the wall that went all over the, toured all over the country, and it's got a permanent home now in Newtown Park in Johns Creek, Georgia, and you can go to it and look up names of friends, family, whatever, and very shortly they'll have a kiosk there that you can uh, type a name in, and it'll give you the exact location of where that person is on the wall. But in both cases, please support our veterans. Support our veterans by going to these two different, and uh, I want to remind everybody too they there's a great memorial at in peachtree corners georgia is becoming the veterans memorial in many ways and while i'm talking about that one of my close friends died recently and you can go to our website and it's j roy ritchie memorial and it's veterans praying for veterans and I can assure you that when you stop a moment, if you're a veteran or if you're not, and you just think about what the veterans have done for us and our country. With that being said, let's get back to Pete Mecca talking about Vietnam. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And now, back to Pete. Thank you, David. Folks, we're talking about uh, my personal journey to uh, the Black Wall. And Veterans Day weekend 2011, I was finally able to reach out and caress the names of the guys that I knew so, so many years ago. One name etched in that black granite was Douglas Rays. Doug and I graduated together from Bartlett High School, northeast of Memphis, Tennessee. Now, Doug was a rough and tumble sort of guy, so he joined the United States Marine Corps. I went to college for a year and wasted my parents' money. 
but I did earn my pilot's license behind the controls of Cessna 150s and 172s. My love of aviation naturally channeled me to the United States Air Force. Doug and I ended up in a country which, unlike Thailand, called the land of smiles, or Japan, the land of the rising sun, didn't even have an internationally recognized nickname. This land, this war-torn piece of real estate under 2,000 years of foreign domination, wasn't even officially recognized as Vietnam until 1945. Yeah, the GIs had slang words for Vietnam, but I sure can't repeat them on the radio. So Doug and I ended up in this no-nickname land of leeches and landmines to fight in someone else's civil war. It just seemed like the right thing to do, at least for some of us. As I stepped on and off of airplanes, Doug stepped on a landmine. He was 18 years old. Over 40,000 names on the wall were 22 years old or younger. PFC Dan Buck was the youngest. Dan had just turned 15 years old. Was Vietnam really worth the price? If one, if one considers the fiascos and humiliations of war run from the basement of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, then absolutely not. But Doug Ray's, GFC Dan Bullock, and Peter J. Mecca Sr.'s progeny had our war. It was our time to serve, and we did not shirk from our duty. I guess the radio road less traveled to produce a lengthy repetition of hard-fought battles. The, the, I don't know, the Hydrain Valley, the Tet Offensive, the good old Jawhead Marines up there at the hilltop base called Quezon, Air Force, Navy jets dodging searched air missiles and enemy MiG fighters en route to downtown Hanoi. I could rehash maybe the Battle of Way. Any critique of Vietnam, however, must include the ironically declared neutral enemy havens in Laos and Cambodia. You have to talk about the Pentagon Papers, wishy-washy politicians, war protesters, and an enemy ally called Jane Fonda. I could do a whole show on that lady. But those fundamentals of war are best left to historians and to the heretics. Folks, my job is to tell the truth. My brother and sister joined, we served, and mercifully, most of us survived. We withstood and endured things Hollywood never filmed or never even thought about. We believed in baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolets with a few Fords thrown to the garage to keep the economy in sync. Yet we spent our formative years with leeches, dung-filled rice patties, pungy steaks, imprintable jungles, cobras, and slant-eyed adversaries who all look the same. <laughs> Some of us even developed the fondness for French cognac. We compared war to football. Gear up, take the field, kick ass, and then come home. 
not in Vietnam. Our boys stayed on the field too long and were drained of their motivation and judgment. American boys were ordered to block, pass, and tackle with one hand tied behind their backs. While the opponent played by their own rules, never saw a penalty flag, and stealthily recruited the cheerleaders, bleacher bums, and concession workers to kill us on the sly. Foul play by the other side, no matter how horrendous, could not be challenged, and replays were prohibited. That's the mainstream media. Folks, the game was rigged. Our fathers crushed Allied powers in World War II, then sailed home victorious. The forgotten war in Korea was, well, pretty much forgotten. But America learned useful lessons on dozens of worthless barren hills in Korea and well remembered the insane peace talks at Panmunjom. The old adage in war, there is no substitute for victory, would be adhered to in future conflicts. conflicts. Yeah, right. After two U.S. Navy destroyers were attacked by North Vietnam torpedo boats, one attack was confirmed, the other attack was very doubtful. Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. That gave President Johnson no hose barred authorization to wage war, an undeclared war, in Southeast Asia. So we fought 10,000 miles from the world world of round-eyed women with a rainbow of hair colors for slant-eyed women, all of them with long black hair. American soldiers actually were in another world, another culture, another race, embroiled in a civil war with no end in sight for intruders. We were ensnarled in a no-win situation. Washington knew it, but lacked the guts to call a duck a duck. If a nation does not learn from its history, then bad history will repeat itself. Iraq and Afghanistan come to mind. Our soldiers, sailors, and airmen fought under awkward rules of engagement. But a soldier is a warrior. And once a warrior, always a warrior. When warriors return from combat, they cannot simply turn off their experiences like a light switch. Native American Indians accept the truism that returning warriors need time to heal their spirit after combat. Thus, Native American warriors are shown respect and honor by their tribes. This was not the case after Vietnam in Biloxi or Baltimore or Boston. We, the greatest, most powerful nation on planet Earth, do a damn lousy job transitioning our veterans back to civilian life. Now, one false concept concerning Vietnam was that we lost the war. If we implies our men in uniform, then the statement is totally bogus. If we means the decision architects and body count technicians in Washington, D.C., then truth wins the day. The American soldier in Vietnam never lost a major battle. The mastermind of the French defeat at Denbin Chu, General uh, Zayap, was perfectly willing to accept infinite casualties to defeat his enemy. 
Even though he opposed the Tet Offense of 1968, he eventually jumped on the bandwagon and rolled the dice with the countrywide head-on confrontation with American military power. He failed. Conventional warfare with overwhelming firepower was Uncle Sam's gridiron. Zayat misses extra point, but he scored significant points in the bleachers by breaking the funding and support of the American people. Yeah, he lost he lost on the battlefield, but went on the American home front. Then came the year of 1972. The United States Air Force ordered sent its huge B-52 bombers in North Vietnam. Folks, power equates to punishment. Fearful of total destruction, the North Vietnamese decided the best avenue for victory lay in the conference table in Paris. Now, shades of Pam and John again. And by the way, a lot of people don't know this, uh, North Vietnam sort of had to come back to the peace table. They had run out of surface air missiles. They could no longer bring down our B-52s. Monday morning quarterbacks can quarrel and debate and promote their analytical intellectual judgments concerning Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan until their faces turn blue. I don't care. But the facts are undeniable. Never send American lawyers into no-win situations. Never hold back the firepower required for a prompt conclusion. And you negotiate from strength, not weakness. And you fight to win. American warriors really are like football players. Give them the ball. Let them run with it, and they'll kick ass. Then get our people to hell home. So, who is to blame? Who can we really point the finger at and say, it's your fault. It's your fault we lost over 58,000 men and women in Vietnam. It's your fault we lost the war. Who's to blame? Folks, I'm not the one to quote, communist leaders, but in this case, it's appropriate. The Chinese Communist Chairman Mao Zedong made a speech in 1937 on protracted warfare. In that speech, he said the following, and it has stuck with me for the rest of my life after I read it in his so-called Little Red Book. And I quote, When politics develop to a certain point, beyond which they cannot proceed by the usual means. A war breaks out to remove the obstacle. If the obstacle is removed, the war will discontinue. If the obstacle is not removed, then the war must continue. Therefore, it can be said that politics is war without bloodshed and that war is politics with bloodshed, unquote. Folks, soldiers don't start wars. The military doesn't start wars. Politicians start wars. With that said, we're going to our last break. I'll be back in just a couple minutes. I'm your host, Dr. Hal. Every week we come to you with the information that you need so that you will be prepared to advocate for your family and for yourselves when it comes to your health care. God forbid... We get Ossoff and Warnock in the Senate, and the left 
gets what they want, which is a majority in Congress and the White House. First of all, health care will be more expensive. There initially will be a public option. The government will run it. They will be initially very inexpensive, and it will drive commercial payers out of the health care market. Then the choices will disappear. The only insurer out there will be the federal government, and that's when we get a single payer. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B.B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I would also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back talking about Vietnam. You know, folks, uh, our participation in the Vietnam War, our war, ended in uh, 1972, and the Communist forces finally won their victory in 1975. And so the Vietnamese people were finally at peace. No, that's a bold-faced lie. During the Vietnam War, Russia supplied Vietnam with weapons and material, and the Chinese supplied Vietnam, North Vietnam, with weapons and material. That's one reason that Johnson was hesitate to expand the war a little bit. He was afraid that the Chinese may intervene. Now, after we left Vietnam, and after the Vietnamese captured Saigon and unified their country, there was a little pesky enemy over in Cambodia called the Khmer Rouge. They wiped out about half of their population and their purges. It was a killing field over there in Cambodia. And they were attacking some of the villages over in Vietnam. The Vietnamese said, no, nope, I'm not going to let them do that. Whereas when we invaded Cambodia, we only went halfway. We didn't finish the job. Well, the Vietnamese did. They went to Cambodia and decimated the Khmer Rouge and got rid of them. Well, they were still supported in their efforts by Russia. Russia, the Soviet Union, did continue to send them weapons and material in the war against these cold-blood killers over there in Cambodia. Now, those cold-blood killers had an ally. The ally was China. In support of these mass murders in Cambodia, the Chinese invaded the northern part of Vietnam across their borders in 1979. 
There was a war between China and Vietnam from February 17th to March 16th, 1979. It lasted three weeks and six days. Well, that's not much of a war, is it? Really? Our intelligence estimates that China lost about 26,000 killed. Vietnam lost between 20 and 30,000 killed. Now, since then, there's been pretty much peace over there. The Vietnamese people have their own country. China is still a pest to the Vietnamese. And we have to understand, I, I know President-elect Biden has been accused of being soft on the Chinese, and maybe the criticism is, is well-founded because Chinese are brutal when it comes to their, their politics. They're expanding their influence all over the South China Seas. They've built military bases out there in, in the South China Sea. Vietnam, Indonesia, everybody's upset about that. But the Vietnamese did kick the Russians, okay, out of Cameron Bay. That's one of the, the best natural ports in the world. We were there during the Vietnam War. It's a beautiful harbor. Big. Can accommodate a lot of ships. The Vietnamese kicked the Russians out. I'm speculating that within time, they will invite us back into Vietnam and into Cameron Bay. Probably not on a large scale, but at least we'll be there to counter any kind of Viet, uh, any kind of Chinese incursion or invasion. China will have to think twice before trying to occupy Vietnam for another 2,000 years. Okay. So our war's over. Really? No. War will never be over for us, the ones who fought there. And we have to forgive a lot for being called baby killers and other bad names. We have forgotten. I'm sorry, forgiven, but we haven't forgotten. We will take that to our graves as Vietnam veterans. Now think about the families of, of Lance Corporal David Nipper from Atlanta. David uh, took off in a uh, seahorse helicopter from USS Princeton in 1964, and they were flying uh, uh, to, to uh, help the local Vietnamese because they were starving due to harsh flooding from a monsoon season. They had rice and bags of flour. Helicopter crash. Only one soldier was missing, one Marine, and his name was Lance Corporal David Nipper. Of course, he is still missing in action. Captain John Smallwood of Marietta, Georgia. Weapon system officer on an F-4 Phantom jet. And that was piloted by Captain Samuel Cornelius. The Phantom was hit by an aircraft car fire over Cambodia. No one ejected. Both of them went down. And they were the last 
two Americans to die in combat in the Vietnam War. That was on June 16, 1973. And they're still listing as missing in action. Bob Kirby of East Point, Georgia. He was in Operation Linebacker with the 340th Bomber Squadron. He was on his second combat tour. His B-52 was hit over Hanoi. Yet the crew stayed on target and completed their mission, even knowing the loss of their aircraft was imminent. Major Bob Kirby is still reported as missing in action. Well, by the way, I have to update that. Current, uh, he was probably the colonel while missing in action, and his remains were eventually discovered and returned home on December 15th, 1968, almost 16 years after his last bomb run. Stanley Crow, both of Savannah, Georgia, shot down. Still missing action on an AC-130 gunship, 1972. First Sergeant James Emery Jones of Alpharetta, Georgia, 1966. Harvard 7-man recon outfits inserted into Laos near the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Disappeared. Still listed as missing in action. My first show on America's Web Radio was with Colonel Patricia Blassie. Her brother was shot down in Vietnam. He was listed as missing in action. And 30 years later, they finally found his remains. He was buried at the Tomb of the Unknown. Long, long story, a great story, and she has a book coming out very soon. I guess I'm getting to the stage of the program, folks, that Vietnam will stay with us, the people who were there until the day we die. It was a brutal war. We were involved in somebody else's civil war. Why were we there? Why did we go to Vietnam? Now, the French were there to colonize the area and strip the country, including Laos and Cambodia, of their natural resources, and they set up plantations. But why was America there? We weren't there to rob them of their resources. We weren't there to colonize. We weren't there to take their lands. Why were we there? We are there for one reason, ladies and gentlemen. We were there to prevent the spread of communism. That's it. It's that simple. We were in the middle of a Cold War, and the people in Southeast Asia, especially Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, and a few other places, they were worried about Thailand. They were worried about a communist takeover. Remember the old domino theory? Well, if one country falls, then it's going to be uh, Laos, then it's going to be Cambodia, and then it's going to be Thailand, going to move over to India. Now, that didn't materialize, but that was a thought at the time. 
So we had a ally, a very unstable ally, in South Vietnam, and the communists were trying to take over that country. It may have been a civil war. It may have been just a fight between Vietnamese. But the Vietnamese up north were communists. And I can tell you right now, communism is a horrible, horrible form of government. It's hard to believe that we have people here in America now preaching for socialism, which is the first step to communism. I think Winston Churchill hit the nail on the head saying that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. We have so much to lose in this country, and we still have so much to fight for. I want to mention one more person that I met. This is Joanne Shirley. Her brother is still missing from Vietnam. And she makes speeches all over Georgia and elsewhere, trying to keep his memory alive. Patricia Blassie tries to keep the memory alive of her brother. But I feel from the bottom of my heart that in time, Vietnam's going to fade just like the Korean War did. It's sad, but it's true. One thing was clear from my research, most if not all of our MIAs from each conflict, including World War II, World War I, they, they just come a mere footnote to history of the powers that be. Private alliances of patriotic Americans and American members of the forgotten are still the main driving force to bring our boys home. And did you know that on that little island out there in the Pacific called Tarawa, that they're still digging up boys, they're still digging up Marines that died there, they're still digging up boys that were buried in mass graves after all these years. We still have, I believe, around 1,500 men still missing from Vietnam, and... Time to go. A few women. There's a missionary that was kidnapped. She died somewhere along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. She never has been recovered. It was a nasty, dirty business, ladies and gentlemen. I don't like it. I detest it. But I know one thing is perfectly clear and always will be. You never, never send our men and women into harm's way unless you have a plan to cut the head off of the snake, stabilize, and then you get the hell out of there. Bring our people home. They're too valuably lost for politics or for politicians. Because if they fail, if they lose, they take the blame, not the politicians. Dave, do you have anything? Jump right in there, folks. I'll see you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.